You know, God delights in large families. Did you know that? He certainly delights in his large family. I mean, it has to be that way. Because his family, according to the scriptures, is myriads upon myriads. God has a lot of children. Drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And our message this morning, actually this morning and next week, is sharing sonship. And so if you'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, we will begin to understand by the power and aid of the Spirit of God what this wonderful sonship is that God shares with us as he makes us part of his family as he makes us children of the living God. Ephesians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. We are going to take up verses 5 and 6 this morning. And as we do that, there are three statements that I'd like to look at with you from, drawn from these two verses. And, and these statements will guide us, really, as we begin to peer into the mystery the mystery of our status as children of the living God. These three statements, beginning here in verse 5 with the first one, and that is the Father's motive is love. The Father's motive in making us children is love. Verse 5, he, in love he predestined us. In love he predestined us. Think with me for a moment. Why did God create people? Why did God create humanity? Or another question to think about, why did God save me? Why did God save me? Why did God save anybody? Why did he save anybody? The answers to these questions of why did God create humanity and why did God save me and why did God save anybody are found within the relationship of the triune God himself. The answers are mysterious to be sure, but, but, they, but they originate within the Godhead. What do I mean by that? Simply this. For all eternity, 
God the Father has been passionately in love with his Son and his Spirit. And they with him. And together they exist in perfect fellowship one with another. Delighting in and enjoying one another's company. And out of that loving closeness and fellowship, God the Father turned outward. As real love always has an object. And he turned outward and shared that love and that fellowship by creating us. It flowed out from within him. It's who he is. Beloved, a a solitary God has no need to love, no purpose to love. He can love himself for sure, but, but it doesn't explain why he would create another, certainly not to share love with them. But our God has always been in love with his son and his spirit and they with him. And so it's only logical, it's only natural for that love to be turned out and for you and I to be a result of that reality. And so he extends himself, creating us, inviting us into fellowship with him, overcoming our sin that he might draw us back and reconcile us to himself. And share with us sonship. The mystery is deep. It's profound. This amazing reality of God saving sinners because he loves them and and desires to share fellowship with them is a truth that is trumpeted across the pages of sacred scripture. We read, for example, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, where John writes, What we have seen and, and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John the Apostle says that, that he is in fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and And John desires you and I to know and experience what he experienced. And so he writes, 1 John, to help us to experience all that he experienced as God has extended fellowship to him. He writes further in chapter 3 and verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such We are. How great a love to be called children of God. How much does God love you this morning? He loves you so much that he has made you his child. He has brought you into his family. That he shares with you the love and the fellowship that he has known and enjoyed for all of eternity with his own son. And now he gives it to you.
to me. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Or a little later in that same letter, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. It didn't originate with us. He loved us when we are most unlovely. Or as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or as Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, God, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. We are children of the living God because God extended himself in love to us through His son. The thought is so powerful. So soul satisfying. So worthy of deep meditation. God loves you. He loves you. And as Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1, is an act of that love. The love of God turned outward. Before time began, the Father determined to do something. He determined to do something. And what he determined to do was to make us his children. To make us his children. Again, look at it, verse 5. In love he predestined us. In love, he predestined us. This word predestined is, a, is one of those combination Greek words, the preposition pro, which means before, and, and the verb horazo, which means to determine. And it, and it means simply this, is, is that God predetermined something. He predetermined something. Before the world began, before time began, before, before the universe was called into creation, God determined to do something. And what he determined to do was in love. Make us his children. Make us his children. Now this word, predestined, or predetermined, It's not used all over the Bible. It actually only has limited usage. It only appears six times in the New Testament. Just six times. And in each of these occurrences, it it, it emphasizes God's initiative, God's soul initiative, God's authority, and what he is going to accomplish. Again, it it drives home the point that we have been been hammering for weeks here, that that salvation belongs to the Lord. It it initiates and originates in God. And is extended outward to us as an expression of His love. 
Notice in, uh, it's worth a, a look, Romans, it's only six, so we'll track them down. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, where Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predetermined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, that is the Son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. In love, God predetermined that his children would become like his son. Verse 30, same chapter. And these whom he predestined, these whom he predetermined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's known as the golden chain of redemption. Every link connected to the one that precedes it, not one falls through the cracks. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7, a more interesting usage. Pick it up in verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, a wisdom that cannot be determined, Paul saying, by, by human scholarship and understanding. But we, verse 7, speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. What wisdom is that, Paul? Well, in context here of chapter 2, it is simply this, that God would save both Jew and Gentile by the death of his own son. That is a wisdom that God predetermined before the, for the uh, foundation of the earth, before the ages began. And it's a wisdom the world could never come up with on their own. A crucified, buried, and resurrected Savior. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, where Paul says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, Paul says, after listening to the message of truth, Having believed, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What is Paul talking about here? He is, he is contrasting Jewish and Gentile salvation. And he's saying that, that Jewish salvation through the resurrected Christ is something God predetermined before the foundation of the world. It was never through the keeping of the law. It was never through the Mosaic ritual that ancient Israel would come into a saving relationship with the Father. It has always been through the death of His Son, both Jew and Gentile. Back to Acts chapter 4 and verse 28. Where Peter is speaking to the Jewish leadership who, who have threatened both Peter and John and, and told them to stop it. Be quiet. Your, your preaching about a resurrected Christ is, is turning the city upside down. 
And they're flogged and they're released. They join back with the believers and and they begin to pray together. And and look how they pray, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predetermined to occur. It is the Father's good plan, determined before all time, that his son would be rejected, that his son would die. In a conspiracy of the Jewish leadership and the Roman authorities, that he might bring a remnant to himself and make them his children. And then here in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. In love, he predetermined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Beloved, there is uh, often confusion that arises with different believers as to the difference between predestination and election. Sometimes people, they get those concepts a little confused in their mind. And it's certainly understandable if that happens because they they relate to the same activity of God. The initiation of God and the salvation of his people. But they are not interchangeable terms. They are not simply two different terms for for the exact same action. There, there is a difference, and the difference is actually quite profound between election and adoption. Or, excuse me, between election and predestination. My mistake. Predestination uh, logically precedes election. It logically precedes election, and and, and I, I think the best way to, to sort of think about all of this is, is that the Father determined before time to, to, to make a remnant of humanity his children. To create a family. But it wouldn't be possible for, for that to happen if, if, if these children are unholy and worthy of blame. And so this, this group, this remnant that the Father has been determined to, to make his children, their unholiness, their blameworthiness has to be dealt with. And so they are chosen to be a people who will be blameless and holy in order to fulfill the Father's plan of making them his children. I mean, that's what Paul says, look at verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. Our election is an election unto holiness and to a removal of our blamelessness in Christ. It is these holy and blameless ones that fulfill the Father's determined, predetermined plan to be his children. And so predestination and election are, are, are together 
in a complementary way, but they're not identical. Again, over in Romans 8, you see it there in verse 30, right? These whom he predestined, he also called. You, you see the, the logical progression. The Father's motive in making us his children is love. Second statement. The Father's method is adoption. The Father's method is adoption. The Father's method in making us children, his children, is adoption. His motive is love. The love that that is within him and who he is. And the method is adoption. He predestined us to adoption, Paul says, as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Adoption. Now, adoption is not a typical feature of Old Testament Israel. There's very little said about adoption with regard to Old Testament Israel. But interestingly, it was very common in the Greco-Roman world. And so it's, it's likely that, that that's what Paul is referring to here. And, and actually, it serves as, a, as really an ideal metaphor to, to talk about what the Father has done on behalf of his people. And in fact, it's a uniquely Pauline term. Paul's the only one to speak of adoption. And he only does it in a couple of places. Galatians chapter 4, Romans chapter 8, and here in Ephesians chapter 1. That's it. Those are the only places where the New Testament speaks of adoption. Paul's the only the apostle to, to introduce the concept, the metaphor. It's his. It's uniquely his. Now, what was adoption? I mean, we, we all know what adoption is here in our day and age, but what was adoption in in the first century when Paul reaches out and and grabs this this, uh, societal reality and and enlists it in service of trying to explain what God has done for us. Well, adoption in the Greco-Roman world was a legal practice. It was a legal thing. It was a legal practice by which the the father of a family accepted as his heir a child who was not his own. Very important. There's a legal process by which a father of a family accepted an heir, as a male child, as his heir who was not his own. By law, the adopted son acquired all the rights of a natural-born son and was released from the control of his natural father. So he literally went from under the control and authority of his natural father to under the control and authority of his adopted father. This relationship was severed. It was terminated. This relationship took its place. Those of you who have watched me dance back and forth on this pulpit from left to right, we know that when I start dancing left and right, I'm always talking about the same thing, aren't I? I am talking about our union with Adam and our union with Christ. 
I'm talking about the old fallen man and the new and living man in Christ. And yes, I am talking about it again. Thank you. Interestingly, the adopted son received the adoptive father's family name. which signified his entrance into a privileged position. You see how beautiful this is? You see how this this cultural reality of the Greco-Roman world forms this, this beautiful metaphor of what God has done. The most famous example, I think, of Roman adoption was the first emperor of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. Good old Caesar Augustus, you'll remember him. He's introduced in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Caesar Augustus was adopted by and received the family name of his maternal great-uncle, the, the Roman dictator Julius Caesar. Caesar was the family name, and it became Augustus's name. And all of the authority, all of the inheritance, all of the power held by Julius Caesar was conferred upon, not Julius Caesar's son, by natural procreation, but on his adopted son, Augustus. What a great metaphor. It's it's beautiful because it so aptly describes what, what God has determined to do, Paul says. He predetermined, and just think with me on this. God predetermined this before the foundation of the world. In space and time, right, the Greco-Roman world comes up with this legal reality called adoption. All under the sovereign providential hand of God, and it is this this cultural reality of the Greco-Roman world that actually explains so well what God Determined to do. How big is your God, by the way? How big is your God? I mean, once we were, according to Paul here in in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, once we were sons of disobedience, children of wrath. That was our natural state. That is is our natural uh, uh, heritage. We, we, are, we are under the authority and control of our father, the devil, John chapter 8, verse 44. But by his grace, God determined to release us, to, to sever, to terminate that relationship, that authority, and instead to, to adopt us as his own children, to give us his name, to bestow on us his inheritance, that which has belonged to his only begotten son for all eternity. We now share it. We become brothers and sisters with the very son of God. This is God's predetermined plan. This This is what God decided in love before any of us existed. 
And this plan of God came to fruition in space and time. In your life. When you turned from your sin and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. When you called upon the name of the Lord to save you. That which the Father had long before planned and determined actuated in space and time. And you were adopted and became sons of the living God. No more here to live forevermore here. Again, as we talk here about adoption, it's probably helpful to make a few more distinctions just in terms of Theological concepts that, that you may or may not have heard. Adoption is, is distinct from regeneration. It's not regeneration. And adoption is not justification. All right, so we've, we've, we've uh, pointed out the differences between predestination and election. And now we're, now we're saying, we're talking about adoption, but, but listen, adoption is not regeneration. That's, a, that's something else. And it's not justification. That's something else. All dealing with the same thing, all equally essential, but not identical. Almost like a, like a great and glorious diamond, that every direction you turn it, you see something new, something beautiful, something essential for it to be that diamond. So, regeneration. Just talk about that momentarily. Regeneration is transformative. Regeneration is transformative. It is to be born again. It is to be born from above, to use the language of John 3. It is to, it is to go from spiritual death to life. Ezekiel 36, verses 26, 27, to, to have the heart of stone that is, that is hard and, and uh, unyielding to God, removed, and, and for God to replace it with something soft and, and supple, a heart of flesh. That's regeneration. It's transformative. It's, it's not something we do. It's something God does to us. You must be born again. That's not a command. That's a statement of reality. That's an indicative. And as Nicodemus so rightly observes, how can a man be born again? You can't enter into your mother's womb a second time. You're right. You can't be born again if it's up to you. You must be born from above. God must regenerate your heart. Now listen, God could have just regenerated us and, and made us alive spiritually, enabled us to, to worship Him and to be responsive to His Word without adopting us. We would then be like the holy angels. They worship. They respond to His Word. But they're not part of His family. Regeneration is transformative. Adoption is something different. 
Adoption is actually declarative. It is a legal transaction, a legal reality. It is, it is the statement, you are now my son. You are now my son. Adoption is not justification. Justification is forensic. That is another fancy way of, of saying legal. Justification is legal. It is a legal declaration that a, that a person is righteous with regard to the demands of God's law. It's a legal declaration. You see it in uh, Romans 8. It's worth going there. Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. Notice the legal language here. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Those are legal questions. Answer, no one. Why? Because God has declared us righteous in Christ. We have been justified. Our sin has been forgiven. We've been given a right legal standing before him. But all of that's possible without being adopted. We could be justified before God. We could be declared right before God. Our sin can be forgiven before God and still not be his children. What would it make us? Well, certainly grateful. Don't you think? I've used this illustration before, but I think it would make us kind of like the person who gets pulled over for speeding and when the police officer walks up to the window and says, you know what, you were speeding, but I'm going to let you go. You'd be super grateful. But you wouldn't be his son. So we can be regenerated. We can be justified and still not become a child of God. So it's something more. It's something bigger. It's something more glorious. It is through adoption that we become related to God the Father. And beloved, it's through adoption that we come to know, I would say, some of our greatest blessings both now and eternally. By the way, this is why the gospel is relational. The gospel at its core is relational. It's, it's about restoring and rebuilding what was forfeited. God created humanity out of an overflow of his love and fellowship that was shared within the Godhead so that, as a, as a loving God, others might enjoy that love and fellowship. And the Bible tells us that in the beginning when God created man, he created him male and female, right? Right? And he, and he breathed into Adam, his, you know, the, the, his nostrils, the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. 
They were made in the likeness of God. They might enjoy him. And they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And God said to them, Take, eat, whatever you like. There's an abundance overflowing for you. But of this one tree, you must not take and eat. Unsatisfied with the bounty and provision of God. Chafing under the fatherly love of God. They chose to do that which had been forbidden to them. And when Adam ate, he ruined not only himself, but he ruined you. And he ruined me. And he ruined every single person ever conceived or whoever will be conceived. It's part of this human race. The relationship that, that, that God was, was openly providing was severed. He drove them from his presence in that garden. And he prevented their return. But in the midst of the tragedy of it all, came the promise of the Redeemer. That the seed of the woman someday would crush the serpent's head, would undo the consequences of Adam's sin, who would succeed where Adam had failed in a new humanity. You fast forward a couple of millennium, there in the wilderness, the nation of Israel, grumbling and complaining against their fellowship with God, huh? their relationship with God. And God sent fiery serpents. He sent snakes among them, right? And, and bit them, and, and they died. And, and Moses was instructed by God to, to create a, a serpent, and a bronze serpent, and to place it on a pole. And, and he said, whoever will look up and see in faith will be healed. And Jesus says later, I am that object of your faith. You are to look to me. And all who look to me in faith, We'll be saved. We'll enter back into relationship with the living God. How's your relationship with your Father? How is your relationship? Beloved, that's what it's about. It's not about Laws. It's not about rules. It's not about what I do and what I don't do. It's about enjoying what God has done 
and living in light of that reality. The Father's motive in all of this is love. The Father's method in making us his children is adoption. Third, the Father's goal is his glory. The Father's goal is his glory. He makes us his children for his glory. Look at what Paul says. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Paul spells out for us here Father's ultimate determination in all of this is his glory. It is his glory. He says the, the basis here in which he has, pre, he has lavished this predestinating love upon us, Paul says, is according to the kind intention of his will. You see it there the end of verse 5? At least that's the way the New American Standard translates it. If you look into the margin of the NASB, you'll see if you've got a study Bible, it'll say literally his good pleasure. We could translate this, that, that we, he, he predestines us according to his good pleasure, the good pleasure of his will. In other words, God the Father delights. God the Father takes pleasure in his plan to make you his child, to make me his child, to come into that that special saving relationship with him. It delights his heart. Isn't that incredible? One writer says, God enjoys imparting his riches to many children. I can identify with that. I delight in giving gifts to my children and my grandchildren. And beloved, I think any loving father delights in that, huh? It's so cool on Christmas morning to see their sparkling little eyes, don't you think? When they see what you've given them. It's not about what you get. Listen, I'm 60 years old. If I need something, I go get it. (laughs) But to give to my children, to give to my grandchildren is a delight. And if it's a delight for me, a, a sinful man, can you imagine the delight of the Father in giving good gifts to you as children? And there is no greater good gift than to make you his child. That is the greatest gift of all. He takes great delight, it says, in his plan to make us his children. But that's not his his greatest joy, according to Paul here. It's according to to his good pleasure, the good pleasure in his will to to do this, but, but that's not his ultimate joy. His ultimate joy 
And the ultimate purpose in his predetermined plan is, is so that we would recognize that all of these blessings are of his grace, freely bestowed upon us. You see it, verse 6. And that we might then praise that grace and the giver of that grace. God's ultimate goal, ultimate plan, ultimate purpose. Why did he pre-plan all of this in which he greatly delights? So that you and I might praise him. We might praise him. Now, some people might question the propriety of that kind of a statement. I mean, if you or I were to arrange everything Christmas morning for the expressed purpose that that everybody would recognize that we are the ones who have given the gifts, right? And they would praise us for our loving generosity and grace. That would not be good. Don't you agree? So why is it good when God does it? Why is it good for God to arrange and do everything so that we might recognize and praise him for all that he has done? When for you or I to do that, that would be bad form, to say the least. The answer, my friends, lies in the infinite gulf that separates us and God. God has life in himself. You are finite, limited, and contingent. Beyond that, God knows everything from the beginning because he ordains everything that comes to pass. You and I, we are carried along for the ride. You don't control the moment of your conception. You don't control the moment of your death. You have nothing to say about your natural endowments. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Our best laid plans have to include an acknowledgement, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. We are finite. We are limited. We are contingent. Beyond that, we are deeply selfish, arrogant, overconfident, Unholy, unloving, and unjust. How's that? Breach it. 
Even our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags, the prophet Isaiah says. The best we got doesn't cut it. Now, I know when we go to a funeral, we pretend. We, we embellish people's lives, don't we? I mean, you go to a funeral, and, and I don't, I'm not looking to be mean here, but we go to a funeral, and we listen to people extol the virtues of the deceased, and by the time you walk out, you think, man, that person was nearly perfect. I would have loved to have met them. I mean, such is what we do. Only one deserves praise. Only one. And he deserves the praise of all of creation. For he spoke it into existence. God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. In the perfection of his being, he is fully, totally, completely, and perfectly holy, loving, merciful, just, gracious, truthful, wise, patient, kind, and good. And we could go on. You see the difference between him and us? That's why if, if I or, or you were to arrange Circumstances such that, that everybody would turn and praise us because how kind we are and how good we are and how generous we are and how gracious we are, it would be ridiculous. It would be a sham. Because we're not God. But for God... To praise him is the right thing to do. It is the natural thing to do. It's a, it, to do anything else is illogical and even sinful. Listen, when God chose to open up his loving heart to sinful people, calling some to himself, adopting them and to his family, sharing his likeness with them in keeping with his character, he is Praiseworthy. Amen. Amen. Remember the question we started out with this morning? Why did God save me? Why did He save me? Paul's answer to that would be so that you would praise His glorious grace that has been freely poured out on you. Do you do that? Does that characterize your life? When's the last time you praised God for pouring out His glorious grace and saving you? Beloved, Paul can't help himself. When he starts to to think on these truths, this this powerful mystery, it just pours out of his mouth. By God's grace, may it pour out of yours and mine. 
Next week, we'll come back and we will begin to tease out the benefits and privileges of adoption. It's going to blow your mind. It is going to blow your mind as we begin to to get a glimpse of what it means to be a child of God. Join heirs with Christ. Let's pray. Father, you indeed could have saved us. And in that would be wonder and marvel and glory and praise. But you didn't stop there. You went so far beyond as you opened up to us your eternal fellowship. And you not just invited us in in the sense of of standing on the front doorstep and saying, come on, but you predetermined to make it a reality. And you slaughtered your own son to ensure that it would come to pass. And by your glorious grace, we now, having trusted in Christ, having having given up on our own effort, and believing that Jesus died for me, and that he conquered death and sin for me when he rose on the third day. You have accomplished something that is so deep, so profound, so glorious, that all of creation, forever and ever and ever, will praise your glorious grace. Now, God, it is what it means to be restored to fellowship with you, to to be a child of the living God. And so may you help us even now to fulfill that purpose. Not just today, not just in this moment, but tonight and tomorrow morning when we get up to go to work and throughout the week, As we go about our business, may this sublime reality occupy our thinking. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.